Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR executive and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, today is kind of an exciting moment for the podcast. You know, so far, all of our guests have been either friends or colleagues, people we already knew. But today we have a guest who's uh, some of his representatives reached out to us because he has this amazing book. So I'm going to call him a new friend today. But it's a fun one because we actually got this, this outreach from this awesome author. Our guest today is David Richman, and David is an author, an endurance athlete, and when I say endurance athlete, I am not kidding. For real, for real. A philanthropist, and his day job, although I have absolutely no idea how he has time for a day job with all those other things, is in the field of wealth management. So David, welcome. We're so excited to have you with us. Well, thanks to the both of you. And I, I'll tell you, as I, I'm doing long bike rides and I'm listening to the podcast, and every time I... I open up one of yours, you open it up with our good friend, our good friend, our good friend. And I'm like, <laughs> exactly. oh my God, what the heck? I'm a total outsider. Well, you're you're our new good friend. Exactly. Right, exactly. 10 fair minutes enough. ago, you were our new friend. Now you're our new good friend. Okay. So, nice. Um, nice. so your most recent book is Cycle of Lives, 15 mm-hmm. People Stories, 5,000 Miles, that's the endurance athlete part, and a journey mm-hmm. through the emotional chaos of cancer. And mm-hmm. while the book is a little bit about you, it's really about other people. And so where we'd like to start our conversation with you today is about your journey. And mm-hmm. just start with wherever you would like to start on that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'll give you a couple of the highlights and lowlights. So everybody's story, I find if you give them a chance to talk, is kind of interesting, especially if you can get to those like you know, pinnacles and valleys of what, what made them. I guess my story starts with the oddity of the age difference in my parents. And when I was born, my mom was 21. My dad turned 60 that year. So, wow. uh, yeah. And uh, my sister was a year and a half older than me. So they were 18 and 56 when they were married. And you can imagine the dynamics with that. And she was also a very young 18. He was a very old 56. So oh, no. as my sister and I grew up, we were I grew up in a household where we had a dad who was very, very old and didn't really know how to relate to kids. He had lived this remarkable life, just insane amounts of world beating accomplishments, but all happened decades before we were born. And so we had that on the one hand is not being able to relate to him that much. And then we had a mom who was, I don't know, what's the word mean, angry, Mm -hmm. you know, probably a bitter that, you know, once she started coming into her own maturity, realizing, holy cow, I've got two kids. I'm very young. I'm married to a super old guy. What the heck? Where, you know, why do I find myself in this spot? She kind of took it out on her kids. So that was the dynamic that we had growing up. So I left home at 18 under not good circumstances, you know, finding my way out in the world and going to go to different colleges uh, to visit, to see which one I'm going to go to. And my car breaks down in Vegas. And yeah. within a day and a half, I'm robbed at gunpoint of everything that oh I my have. God. And yeah. And I don't have anybody to call. Like I said, I didn't leave under good circumstances, nobody to call, no money and found myself living behind a supermarket inside of my car 
uh, freaked out. I called my sister collect and she, she was pretty worried about me, but I didn't, I didn't let her know. I said, I'm okay. And, uh, yeah, that, that started my journey. Wow. And we know that was more than a couple years ago because you made a collect call. <laughs> what <laughs> is that? We might even have some people listening who don't oh, even know what a collect what call is. is. Oh my God. I took some coins and put it in a thing called a payphone, and an operator came on. That's funny. So there you find yourself in Las Vegas, kind of no yep. money living behind, you know, a grocery store. So yep. what happens next on your journey? Oh my gosh. So, um, I figure out a way to like get a job and, you know, start to, I don't know. I think everything from like the moment that I left the house until like my mid to late thirties was a struggle of needing to get from point A to point B and point A to point B might've been, I got to get out of this car and get into an apartment. I got to get food and not you know, just smoke cigarettes for my meal. I got to get to the point where I can afford to buy new clothes. I, you know, I had to get like point A to point B. And I think that put me in a position of like always being blinders on ahead of me and not really looking around me in the way I needed to. And I didn't, I don't think I was the best decision maker. I think I was always, um, if I wasn't in a hole trying to get out of it, I was really good at digging myself a hole to get out of it so that I could prove to myself, like I got to solve these major problems. And in my thirties, I found myself married to somebody who was very much like my mother, except for Adam alcohol to the abusive side of her. And I had young twins and I, uh, they were only four at the time. I had to get us out of that situation. And I think the point of transformation for me came when I got out of that relationship. Uh, I got my, I got my kids and me to safety. I had all these stresses at work. I just found out my sister was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And I, I remember standing, I mean, no joke, standing in front of a mirror going like, honestly, this is who you are. I mean, really. Hmm. And I just said to myself over and over and over, I said it out loud. I almost was embarrassed to myself about it, but I just said over and over and over, like, who are you? Like, what do you want to be? Hmm. And that's when I said, you know what? You've just never, ever asked that question. You just never, you've never purposely said, this is what I'm doing for me. It's always been like to get out of a jam or to make my mom not angry or to make my employer give me a raise or to, you know, whatever. It was always for somebody else. I never really did it for myself. Well, it sounds like so much of your life up to that point had really been spent in survival mode. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, when you got a gun pointed to your face while somebody else is stealing all your stuff. And you're, I was 18 years old. I mean, I I was, I was an immature, young, not streetwise 18 year old. I mean, that kind of freaked me out. And then I was like one bad thing after another, after another, and some of it self-imposed, some of it not. You're right. It was just survival mode. And, you know, I, I guess it wasn't hard, like, super crazy, ridiculous stuff. Right. I mean, everybody has difficult times, but I think that that dynamic of any time that I could, I was literally trying to do things for others to please others or to be a certain way, you know, like, Oh my God, you know, I got to 
attain this. So I got to work harder because my boss will like me, or, you know what, I, I got a chip on my shoulder that I didn't accomplish this. So I've got to, I've got to try harder over here. So this person will reward me or whatever. And so I just was a mess. I, I literally was a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you, I mean, you were, as Sherry said, surviving quite a lot from all over your childhood to those moments in Las Vegas and beyond. And so you spent a lot of your life, as you said, surviving and mm-hmm. trying to please others. And then you, you sort of mentioned there was this transformation as you got yourself out of that sounds like very terrible relationship with your then wife. And you found yourself staring in the mirror. Like, where do you think that came from? To just ask yourself over and over again, what do you, what do you want? And, and what do you want to be? Where did that come from? And what did you learn from it? You know, I'll tell you that when you're like, again, I don't want to make it more dramatic than it was. There was, you know, it sounds but, like it had, there was a reasonable amount of drama there. There though. was a reasonable yeah. <laughs> amount of drama, but when you are in some kind of survival mode or self-protection mode or whatever, you're, you're not really reflective. You're, you're reactive, right? You don't sit there and go, Hmm, you know, gosh, you know, what should I do about this? Whatever. You just act, you just, you're just very reactive and dealing with stuff. And so I think that because I was so frenzied about like trying to get myself to whatever point I thought I needed to be at, because that's what you do when you're trying to be a good employee or a good boyfriend or a good dad or a good whatever. When you're trying to do that, I just don't think that you, I didn't naturally reflect on who I was. And when I finally got the courage and like everything fell down at once, right? Because I had stresses at work. I I had unbelievable stresses at home. I had the responsibility of these two kids. And then my, my sister who I admired told me, you know, she's, she's going to die soon. Mm -hmm. And I just went, Oh shit. I gotta, I gotta start thinking about what the heck is going on with me. I think the moment was I was in a fight with my ex-wife and she screamed at me, you know, I'm not your dang mother. And I went, Oh, wait a second. You, you actually are. Oh, yeah, you are. Oh, wow. And I went, oh, my God, what the heck am I doing? You are. You exactly are my mother. And and I'm not going to make you happy. I couldn't make her happy. What the hell am I trying to do making you guys happy? I think that that was like this this whole like different points of light that just shined you know, on me going, maybe you should start worrying about yourself. You know, like that old thing, like on the airplane, you know, put your own mask right, on. Right, right. 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 I never really understood the depth of that, like that right. analogy. And you do, you need to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And I don't think that I ever took care of myself. I was always taking care of others. Right. Well, and to add to that picture in your bio and on your book cover, the description of you, you describe yourself as a former sedentary, overweight smoker. So in addition to everything else you're describing, it sounds like you were kind of a physical mess as well. I was, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was, you know, I wasn't like morbidly obese, but I was like 50 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. I had learned from the age of about 17 that the way that I deal with any stress is to grab a cigarette, you know, and I spent three days worth 56 cents in my pocket with nothing to eat, but cigarettes, you know, living mm. behind that, that Ralph's in Vegas. And, and I think that became my crutch. And so I was a pretty heavy smoker and sedentary in the fact that I maybe did some activities, but I wasn't athletic. I wasn't an athletic yeah. person and I didn't have any athletic goals or whatever. I, I was that person when, when I was asked, you know, what's the first run that you did? And I go, 
I don't even remember. I, I think running to catch a red light, you know, so I wouldn't do a <laughs> daywalking ticket or something. I, that, right. that was the extent of my adult physical activity was running across the street. So, and I'm just going to interject here for one second. And how many Ironmans have you done now? I so said, done like 17 or 18. I'm getting ready to do one in six weeks or so in, in Tennessee. So I've done quite a few Ironmans and, and other things. I'll tell you the progression on that, which is kind of one of my points, which is fascinating that I discovered this in life. I think a lot of people know it, but I had to, I had to discover it a different way is that you can push yourself to levels you, you never even imagined. And mm-hmm. in one sense, I was self-protection mode, survival mode, whatever. So I was taking care of myself that way, but not in a healthy way. And like that, just covering myself, you know, with, with regards to the negativity. When I started saying, who do you want to be and what can you accomplish? I was very insecure and felt like an imposter and was very unsure of what I could do. And I mean, like I'm a 37 or 38 year old guy who's 50 pounds overweight and is a smoker. And I said, Hey, I just read about this Ironman thing. I think I'm going to go do an Ironman. How am I going to say that and have credibility? Right. Exactly. So what was the progress then? So you're, you had just heard that your sister had a diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. And so what happened next that kind of got you off the couch and, and supporting her and. So it was unbelievably freeing. And I I went into this in, in, in another book that I wrote called winning in the middle of the pack. It was unbelievably empowering and really unbelievable weights off my shoulder when I started this idea in my head of why don't you take care of yourself first? Mm. And and the cool thing is, is and and I and I stole this and from one of the founders of Ironman, he, he said, you know, I might not finish that day. He says, but I'm going to finish ahead of the person that never started. Right. But if I quit, nobody's going to care, but I'm always going to know. And right. I thought to myself, oh my God, nobody's going to care. You know what? You're right. And it's awesome that nobody cares, but what a standard to think. I don't care what anybody else thinks. It only matters what I think. And I went, whoa, that is amazing. And so the progression went pretty fast. My daughter was sucking her thumb still. She wasn't quite five. Um, My son wasn't, they're twins. And she said, uh, you know, gosh, you got to stop smoking because my teacher says that smoking causes cancer. You know, this is like, great uh, uh, kindergarten and you know june's gonna die of cancer and i don't want you to die and i was just like whoa and i said yeah okay i'll quit smoking but can you quit sucking your thumb and she's like oh dude he knows i still suck my thumb so so we made this little trade and uh I quit smoking a lot quicker than she quit sucking her thumb. Hopefully she won't hear this podcast. Otherwise she's going to smack me, but. Um, All right. But we anyway, got to track we, her down now. I know. Right. And are you going to do the tracking or am I? Right. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you, I just got a text from her today. She just got confirmation that she obtained her master's degree from Cambridge. Oh, she's at Cambridge in England how cool is that? Yeah, I know. I just got that text today. So you got to go to England to find her, but. Uh, yeah, she'll slap me down for that one. But so I, I quit smoking about a week later, I went for a run. It was less than two minutes. I couldn't handle it. It was, it was stupid. And then about four weeks later, I ran a 5k that was in March in April. I did a, a triathlon in July. I did a half Ironman in November. I did a full Ironman. So I poured myself into training because I thought to myself, geez, why don't you just do it for you? 
And when I found like I could do it for me, I felt like I could push myself a lot harder and it wasn't so difficult. Like I felt good about doing things for myself. And I'm like, yeah. oh, well, that's, that's pretty cool. Like, you know, like I worked harder at work to please the boss and yeah, that's who I am. And I wanted to work harder, but I didn't go home feeling fulfilled. But when I pushed myself harder for me, I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. Do you know, and so it's just a change of a mindset. I don't know how it happened, or maybe most of your listeners, uh, you know, got there when they were six years old. They figured that stuff out, but I, I didn't. Right, I didn't figure that out until much later. You are not alone in that. I'm really curious to hear how quickly you were able to get yourself into some pretty remarkable shape, mm-hmm. and you know, oftentimes a really good strategy for someone that is completely out of shape and getting into shape is like slow and steady, right? Small increments, lace up the tennis mm-hmm. shoes, go to the end of the block, right? Go four blocks the next day. And yet you had a pretty steep ramp up from where you started to in a very, very short time. Yeah. And so I'm just, yeah. I'm curious either where did you find the motivation for that or what was it that gave you the resilience? Cause that cannot have been physically easy. You're right, Sherry. It wasn't. And so I think up until that time and maybe a few years after when somebody would say something to me that was some kind of like, put your own mask on first or, you know, right. figure out a way to get up out of bed or just cross the line. I was just like, shut the hell up. Like I hate <laughs> those kind of trite things, right? I just hate, I, I hate these little nuggets that people give you that are kind of preachy prescriptive, like little mantras to live on. Cause it just doesn't resonate with me. Like, I, mm. I don't know why, maybe that's a you know angry kid in me that, or who knows? I don't even know, but I'll tell you the answer to the question is, is that when, something happened to me on the very first endurance athletic event I went and it just, it became a mantra that wasn't trite to me. It became a mantra that wasn't like somebody trying to get me to believe a certain thing, you know, just because they said it. And I'll tell you really quick the story. So the very first endurance thing that I did, I was still smoking. Wow. I did did (laughs) an 87 mile rollerblade race in Georgia. Okay. Going from I went from Athens, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And please tell me it wasn't the summer. <laughs> oh, it was the summer. It oh was God, ridiculously <laughs> hot. It was unbelievably hot. I had no business being there. I could tell you a hundred stories about it, but in direct answer to your question, Sherry, I'm at like mile 35 and I'm completely depleted. I'm dehydrated. I'm salty as you could ever imagine. I have no idea what I'm doing out there. It's the stupidest thing ever. The sag wagon, you know, the wagon that comes to pick you up if you're going too slow is like a mile behind me. And I'm just like, if I don't pick it up, I'm heading up this hill on these rollerblades and I cannot move my legs. And I turn sideways on the hill so that I don't go back down it. Right. And I lean over and I put my hands on my knees and I'm watching the sweat drip off of my head. And it's white because of all the salt. Right. And it's forming this line down below me. And I just got this thought where I went, listen, there's a line and everything behind that line, you already know, like you, you, Mm. you, you know, everything behind that line, but everything in front of that line is a brand new experience. Everything that happens is a brand new you, every new step. And I said, if you could just get past that line, right. 
then you're going to learn something. You're going to find something new about yourself. And if you can take one more step beyond that, you're going to find something beyond that, beyond that. And I said, oh my God, everything that I try that is outside of what I know about myself is a reason for me to expand. I'm like, wow, that is ridiculous. And nobody's going to care, right? Nobody's watching. It's just all about me. And I thought, man, that's really cool. So I, I move one leg and then another and then another. And I did finish it. Right. I don't know how I finish it. And I finished it ahead of the sag wagon and it was really brutal. But at the end, I just kind of sat there going, man, I learned a lot about myself. And so that pushing the extreme upward trend was just because I was on this ridiculous quest to learn about myself, to see what are you capable of? And I think that if we focus on what we know about ourselves, we're not going to accomplish as much. And if we kind of yearn for what we're trying to find out about ourselves, like me, that created a hunger. So I needed to ramp it up as quick as I could. So I could say, Hey, I want to be that guy that can go do an Ironman. I did one time wake up because I wanted to be the guy that said, I'm in good enough shape that I could wake up today and go run 50 miles without any training. So I did it. Wow. Right. Wow. Who could think that you could do that? One of the things I love about your story is, yes, it's an incredibly fast ramp up, but actually mentally, it very much was one step at a time. And that is a really powerful image, this idea of really pushing yourself and setting these very high goals for yourself, being motivated by wanting to learn about yourself, but still holding it. I just have to take the next step. I mean, Sherry, what you're saying really reminds me so much of your most recent book as well, right? Because there was this arc. That's of, David's most recent book, not my most recent book. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> exactly. Although I'm still waiting for your first book, because I'm sure it'll be fabulous, Sherry, when it comes out. Is this arc of, so you just talked about kind of a mental mindset. Mm-hmm. And what I found so compelling in your book was kind of the emotional arc as well, right? And so there's so much in your book about kind of these baby steps and then the burgeoning depth of emotions. And Mm -hmm. at the very beginning, you say, look, I, you know, I'm not an an expert here. And yet it became sort of, I think the backdrop for the entire book is, is really understanding emotions and, and people that are, have touched cancer in lots of different ways. The, the degree to which they had or had not started to process emotions. And so I'm curious, you know, we've heard about kind of your physical kind of building up. Mm-hmm. You and Sherry were just talking about your mental building up. So I'm curious about this emotional sort of building up that we really got to witness in the book. My wife, she's involved in a big mentoring organization. And I, I have some friends that are involved in trying to change, you know, the foundations of the education experience in the United States. And all of that revolves around young people not having the emotional intelligence, the ability, the vocabulary to ex- express their emotions, the, mm. the developed brain to understand emotions, right? I, I think that that is a fascinating field. And so it makes it so that I don't really beat myself up over it because you just know what you know when you know it. Right. But I was always like a, a very emotional. I was moved easily. I, I was deeply reactive to things and I was very emotional, but I kept it really bottled up inside or I didn't mm. know how to express it or I expressed it in other ways. And when I finally started to kind of settle into it and try to understand it and explore it, it just became an area that became more and more comfortable for me. And so 
you know, it's kind of funny. If I could tell you a super quick story, when I was interviewing a bunch of people and eventually the 15 that ended up being in the book, I would say to them, you know, I got to go really, really deep into the issues. I got to go really deep into your traumas. I got to go really deep into the emotional side of what's going on with you. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I've, I've never done that. I'll do it with you. And I go, because we got to get, bring out the, the highlights of your life so that the reader can be better equipped to understand your journey so that they can then use that in the language that they need to use when they're talking to people that are going through trauma so they can better connect to them. Yeah. And they said, that's fine, but my story's not that interesting. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, well, let's see what we find out. So I, fi- I, I finished the first draft of the book and my wife goes, oh, why didn't you like talk about your bike ride more and your journey with your sister and the emotions behind that? And I go, well, my story's not that interesting. And she's like, oh my like, God. Huh, where so, have I heard this before? I know, right? So my, my editor said, I have a really good idea. Why don't you pull yourself out of those 15 stories? Because they're not about you. They're about them. And then why don't you write this little narrative in between about your own story? And I went, wow, okay, uh, yeah, sure. And then I gave it to one of my test readers and she said exactly what, what you just uh, were alluding to. And she said, I was left a little bit empty on the narrative because mm. you didn't go the pl- same place and the same levels that you went to with your book participants. And so then I went and, and redid it again. So I guess the emotional journey for me uh, as it might be for, for other people as well, just happens when it happens. In my case, it just happened a little bit later in life. And so during the financial crisis, I'm running a very large business for a major Wall Street firm in Pasadena, California. And unfortunately, a financial advisor with young kids, a family, the whole deal, couldn't handle the pressure, made some bad decisions, whatever, and decided to jump off the building. And it was absolutely horrible, right? He was very loved. It just really hit people. And I I was out of the office. I flew back from New York real quick. We couldn't get a grief counselor there quick enough. So I had to walk around or chose to walk around to all the offices and talk to people. So I open up an office, close the door and go, oh my God, can you imagine you know, could, could whatever. And then the person would go, I can't imagine. And they would go, look, when I was, you know, a teenager, one of my best friends killed themselves. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what? And I started saying, how, what, what? Then I'd walk out and I'd go to the next office and I'd go, oh my God, this is horrible. Could you imagine like where your brain goes or something? How terrible. You know what? I can't imagine. Cause when I was six years old, my grandfather uh, took a shotgun in the garage. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what? Every single one somebody had a first person experience with suicide and then the emotional exchange that happened between us was just shocking and these were people i knew really well but i didn't know this side of them and i'm just like wow how that trauma might have affected them certainly how it's brought up you know by this current experience i I just found fascinating and intriguing and so that kind of stuck in my head that there's so much surface you know so much and what's so compelling about that is also the the fact that you kind of went into the offices at a very surface level. I mean, you were trying to be a good guy and make sure people are okay, but kind of a surface level, like, can you believe what would get to, and how quickly people were able to drop in and what a gift that really was, right? Mm-hmm. It really, it really shined a light in some ways on how to be emotionally present. Right. 
Yeah, I had uh, maybe only one mentor in life. I'd say my wife is the second one because she's really mm-hmm. smart and very, it's taught me a whole lot. But but I only had one mentor in life and she very early on in my management career in financial services when a really tough situation was going on, I walked into her office to complain about it and I was nearly in tears over this thing I had to do. And she looked at me and she said, you know, this is supposed to be hard. Like, don't take it hard. It's supposed to be hard. And I went, oh, well, if it's supposed to be hard, then why am I being so affected by it? So walking into those offices was hard, but it's supposed to be hard. So it wasn't hard. Right. The only way for things like that to not be hard is if you completely wall yourself off emotionally, right? And then you're just right. completely <laughs> arm's length, right? And so yeah. that, I mean, that's why it's supposed to be hard because it means you are open and you're connecting at an emotional level. And I'm really curious, you're talking about the trauma that so many people shared with you around suicide. I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about how losing your sister June and Mm -hmm. going through her illness with her, how that has impacted where you are today and how that has impacted your journey. Well, it certainly has in a lot of different ways, right? I'd say one of the uh, major ways is that, you know, when you do have a long illness, that's going to result in somebody dying, maybe not like 30 years from now, but, you know, over a few year period, and it's pretty intense and it's pretty dramatic and it's, it's very traumatic, but it does give you one thing that other types of loss don't give you. And that is an opportunity to connect at a different level. Yeah. And I was able to connect with her at a different level because of what she was going through. We kind of had this sense of urgency that we needed to talk as often as we could or you know wanted to and that we needed to talk about things that were important to us because we weren't going to have that opportunity that we needed to talk about things that were very moving and traumatic because we could give each other the safety to do that. Right. So it's one of the things that I feel so bad about when you hear somebody dies in an accident or, you know, unexpectedly or whatever, just the amount of regret that goes on and the the loss is so much, it's not more meaningful, but it's deeper in some levels because you couldn't reconcile some of your emotions and some of the angst and some of the regret and some of the, where if somebody's dying, you can kind of deal with those things. Do you know, I remember uh, one of the book participants, Bobby, I don't know if you read his story, but his his is one of the most impactful stories. That's why I put it near the front is because he lost his wife to breast cancer and he had just met her not too long before. And they had both had this crazy effect on each other. It was this most meaningful relationship either one could ever imagine having had. And then it was ripped, ripped from them, both hers by dying, his by being left behind. But because they were so close and because they had this opportunity to talk, they kind of settled every score possible, like everything about it. And so even though it hurt to lose her and eventually when she did die, it was unbelievably painful. He had literally processed a lot of the emotion. He had done that with her. And so he had to get out of town to interact with people who weren't puppy dog eyeing him and weren't like, right. Oh, you poor thing, you poor thing. Oh, right. Cause no, he had long beyond that. Yeah. And so, uh, although it was difficult 
to watch June and especially her regret over leaving behind her husband and her two young kids and, you know, her friends and stuff like that. That was really traumatic. But I, I do look back and go, I learned that if given the opportunity to interact with people that you care about and have authentic, you know, really deep heart centered interaction where you can both, you know, really solve problems and feel fulfilled about issues that you wouldn't normally have an opportunity to talk about. That's kind of a gift, even though it's wrapped in a really, really ugly package. What struck me so much in your book is just the emotional current. In fact, you you know, you you proactively name people's emotions, positive and, and negative, you know, in, mm-hmm. in each interview that you share with us. What I'm really curious about is this being able to stay with. Earlier on, you you talked about after the suicide that happened where, at the place you were working and people willingly being able to share, but that doesn't always happen, right? The gentleman you were just talking about how he had to get out of town so people weren't giving him the sad puppy dog eyes, right? But all of us, I think, struggle when we get to that moment and somebody shares something sad or tragic or, or whatever. And what I'm so appreciating is your ability just kind of stay there. And, and even towards the end of the book, you've done this 5,000 mile journey, you're coming mm-hmm. into New York City and you ask another cyclist for directions. Yeah. And she shares her story about how cancer has been involved in her life. Yeah. I think you said something like, I could have just said, I'm so sorry for your loss, but you didn't. You kind of right. went there with her. Yeah. And I think that's hard for a lot of us. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how to just stay with somebody to go with them with their emotions. That's probably in like the best question I ever asked in the history of asking questions because, <laughs> because I actually have an answer for you. It's a well thought out question. I have an answer for you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is that that was the whole purpose of this book, the whole purpose of the Cycle of Lives Project, the whole purpose of every conversation that I had with each one of the people that I spoke to is because it's so hard to do. It's so much easier to go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then walk away and go, oh my God, I don't want to say anything stupid or I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I don't want to make them think about something they shouldn't be thinking about. I don't want to invade their space. I don't, I wasn't that close to him. Can I say more than I'm sorry? Or right? there's a million thoughts that go through our head where you just go, Oh man, I don't, I did. Why did they have to tell me that? Cause I don't know what to say. Uh, right. Every single one of the people, every single person I ran into had some narrative about their emotional side that was aligned with that thought of, I don't know what to say. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to know what to say. I push people away. I can handle it on my own. I'm fine. I'll go in my corner and cry. You name it, whatever it is, that's right. we all have that. And that was the reason that I set out here is that if we can talk to people, if we can understand how the traumas in their life affect them. So in other words, but when somebody says something like, you never know what somebody's going through, it's a little trite to me. If you really understand what somebody went through, then you can say, I, oh, really? I, sometimes you don't understand what people are going through, right? And so there's this one guy, he's a very good friend now, Joshua in the book. He deals with abandonment in the worst way possible, okay? Mm-hmm. He watched his mom commit suicide when he was a little kid. Imagine that. And his girlfriend, as he's being wheeled in for cancer surgery, the first one, finding out that he might die, says, Shh, I'm out of here. This is not for me. So he has to wake up alone. So when he says, I don't need a ride to chemo. I'm fine. I got it. I'm 
like somebody, 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 somebody else has got me. <clears throat> it's because there's no way that dude would ever ask you for help right. because if he asks you for help, you might just abandon him. Right. Oh, right. To be vulnerable feels so dangerous to someone like that, to so many right. people actually. So what that did was give me the ability that if somebody says to me, no, I'm really fine. I got it. Right. Then even though it's uncomfortable and even though it's not easy, I'm going to say, well, okay, but are you saying you got it because you don't want to ask me for help because you're afraid that I might not deliver? Are you saying it because you think I'm not capable to give you help? Are you saying it because you don't want me to be burdened with, with this? Because I'm asking you because it's not a burden. It just allows you to go maybe one step deeper. Yeah. And so when I ran into that cyclist at the end and she said, you know, oh my gosh, I'm, I, you know, cause we had this super quick interaction. I told her I was doing this ride for cancer and blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, my dad died of cancer four years ago. 15 years before I would have went, Oh my God, why did she tell me that? My first thing would be like, Oh, I'm sorry. And then I'd bike off going, thank God I can bike hard and fast and get away from her. Right. <laughs> right? Because I don't know what the hell to do. But what I said was, Oh my gosh, really? Were you guys close? Yeah. And that started a conversation that will stick with me for the rest of my life. Cause she showed me a, a, a story that will never leave me. I mentioned this in the, in the book many times, but I think we're only connected by our emotions and by stories. And so yeah. if I could tell stories that would spark like some insight into the emotional traumas that we all have, then it might allow us to, as, as you said, Anne, stay present and have the ability to ask the hard question or allow them to ask us the hard question. Right. Right. And I love how practical your suggestion is That's and right. how practical your own actions are around asking the questions back. Are you saying you're okay because, mm -hmm. right? Are you saying mm -hmm. you don't need help because you're afraid I'll let you down because mm -hmm. I'm not capable? And there's something that is so practical about that, but also so powerful because it makes it much easier for the person on the other end to then be able to either answer the question and say, yeah, I think you're incompetent and I'm certainly not going to trust you with anything um, yeah. or to say, actually, good point. And yeah, right. I could do some help with that. Yeah. Or Sherry, how about this? How about this? Right. You tell me, I find out something difficult and I say to you, Sherry, you know what? This might be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yes. Instead well, of limiting yourself from asking right. a stupid question, right? Maybe it's not a just, stupid question. Just, just naming it, right? Yeah. Just absolutely naming it, right? right. And, yeah. and what you did with the cyclist in New York was also ask such a simple, mm -hmm. easy question, which was a bit of an invitation, right? Were you guys close, mm -hmm. right? And and what that did is that then it facilitated this bit of an opening. And I think I think that's what happens sometimes. We overcomplicate at times. And right. so I love just the beauty and the simplicity of that question that you asked her. Mm -hmm. So on the topic of questions, I have another question for you, which is yeah. if you could go back in time and have a conversation with your younger self, knowing what you know now, right? Having this very different relationship with yourself now and seeing the world very differently. What is one piece of advice you would give him? Well, there's two. One is don't start smoking, right? Because that's, really <laughs> that's <stupid>. smart. <laughs> right? I mean, that's really, it's really stupid. I mean, I've done a lot of things since then, but who knows? I still have this little thought in the back of my head, like, oh my God, am I going to have to pay for that one day? But um, I think that the obvious one from, from our talk is, and I've, I've thought about this wouldn't it be nice if somebody could have sat me down if it was me and I said, dude, it's nice that you do stuff for other people and keep doing that. 
but really make sure that you're doing it because it's what you want to do and not because it's what you think you should do or what you think people want you to do. Do it because it's what you want to do. And, you know, I love when people tell me stuff like, oh, I went to a soup kitchen or I took my kids, you know, to go pass out meals to homeless or whatever. I love that because when it comes from a place of doing it because it's what you want to do, even though it's for somebody else, how much more like meaningful is that in life? So I think that I've applied that now for the last, you know, many years to all parts of my life. But I certainly feel like I missed out on a lot in life by not taking that approach until I finally did in my late thirties. But I wish that I could tell myself, Hey, you know what? Just, just put yourself first. I love that you ultimately took that advice to yourself. Um, (laughs) I'm a slow learner. Come on, Sherry. I'm a slow learner. (laughs) I kind of think most of us are to be perfectly honest, Uh. (laughs) right? Just kind of the way of the world. Well, it has been such a pleasure having you with us. We will put all the information about your book, Cycle of Lives, in the show notes. We'll include your website and any other information we think will be interesting to our listeners. And it's just been a delight to have this conversation with you. Oh, thanks, Sherry. And thank you, Anne, both. You're, you're really good. I've really enjoyed your uh, past podcast. And I now, now I'm less intimidated by the fact of, oh, this is my really good yoga friend. And this is my really good teacher friend. And this is my really good this friend. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You are now my really good uh, emotional intelligence friend. There you go. So how about that? There you go. I love that. I love that. Awesome. Thank you. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, both of us just enjoyed it so much. And, and just for our listeners, just so you know, all proceeds from book sales of Cycle of Lives goes to charities that the participants have designated. You can also donate directly through David's website, which will be listed in the show notes. So that really wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed having David be a guest here with us today and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. It really does make a huge difference. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.